Our Bible reading this morning comes from the book of Corinthians that Paul wrote to the folk down in Corinth in southern Greece, and it's 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're starting at verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. And Paul writes this. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it's written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because when a plowman plows and a thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in what is offered at the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights. And I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I'd rather die than deprive anyone of this boast. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. So what then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge. And so not make use of my rights in preaching it. And we leave Paul's letter there. Raj, you're absolutely right. This is a difficult passage, and I don't envy you uh, trying to plan worship around it. Hey, at least you don't have to preach a sermon on it. Um, To say that Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 9 is complex is perhaps a bit of an understatement. Tortuous might be a better description, perhaps, because there are two questions, two issues, two problems. The first, how does this chapter fit in with the rest of the letter? In the previous chapter, 1 Corinthians 8... Paul talks about food offered to idols, hardly a live issue for us, as we thought last Sunday night. In 1 Corinthians 9, 
He switches to the question about whether or not he's entitled to financial support as an apostle and the reasons why he doesn't use that right. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, he goes back to the question of food offered to idols again. So the inevitable question is, why in the middle of talking about a fairly obscure topic, that of food offered to idols, does Paul take this lengthy detour into the issue of financial support? And the second question is, why does Paul spend 14 verses establishing a rock-solid case in favour of his entitlement to financial support for his work as an apostle, only to say at the end of all that, not using it, not taking up those rights, I'm I'm not going to go down that road. The whole argument is extremely difficult to follow. So what's going on? The first point is that Paul sets himself up as an example of someone who voluntarily relinquishes their rights in the cause of the gospel. And he does this because this is what he's told the Corinthians to do in chapter 8. And actually he does this because this is how we should deal with each other in all situations. Not I'm standing on my rights, but actually it's my right to do this, but for your sake, I'm not going to stand on what's due to me. I'm going to give it up in love and in humility. In 1 Corinthians 8, he tells those who are convinced that there's nothing wrong at all with eating meat that's been sacrificed to pagan deities, that they are absolutely right. There is nothing wrong with it. They are perfectly free to do so. But, but, for the sake of those around them who are vulnerable and less secure in their faith, they ought to curtail their freedom. They shouldn't do what's right in their own eyes without a disregard for the impact that their behaviour has on others. So that they've got the right to eat the meat for the sake of others, they should not use that right. And in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul makes it clear that this is how he himself lives. He has the right and the freedom to claim financial support as an apostle of Jesus Christ. But he has curtailed this freedom. He's waived his rights for the greater good of the gospel and for the sake of others. He was always a man who practiced what he preached. He was a man of integrity whose beliefs and way of life were inseparable from each other. Some of you might say that made him very difficult to live with, and you might be right. But in the words of Margaret Mitchell, Paul presents himself as the perfect paradigm of the proper use of Christian freedom which freely surrenders its right to have its own way for the sake of the entire church community and the gospel. As Christians, we have the right to do whatever we want, but as Christians, we are called to choose to serve each other and put each other first. Luther put it well when he said, the Christian is the most free person of all and subject to nobody. But the Christian is also the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everybody. I don't have to do what anybody says, but I'm called to serve everyone around me. That's how we're called to operate as Christians, in our relationships in church, in our relationships with each other. At the same time, Paul focuses on the question of financial support because this was an issue between him and the Corinthians. There were those in the church who were challenging his authority and saying, if Paul was a real apostle, 
if he was a true man of God, he wouldn't be supporting himself by doing manual labour, doing the demeaning job of making tents. There were those in Corinth who, who thought that Peter was a good guy, he had a bit of a fan club, a bit of a following, and in their eyes, Peter, now he was a proper apostle, because he, he lived by faith from preaching the gospel. He accepted support and hospitality from people in the towns he visited preaching the gospel. And after all, when Jesus sent out the 12 and the 72 to preach the kingdom, did he not make it clear that this was how they should operate? Not supporting themselves, but relying on God to provide for their needs to, through the people to whom they preached the kingdom. So the Corinthians, some of them at least, were setting themselves up as judge and jury to examine Paul's credentials, and in their verdict, he was failing to meet the criteria of being a proper apostle because he wasn't living by faith. Paul does see himself as an apostle. He uses different criteria to establish that calling. And there's a strong element of self-defence in the questions with which Paul opens this chapter. Am I not free, he says? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? And the answer to those questions cannot be anything other but, yes, of course. Of course, I am free. Of course, I am an apostle because I've seen the risen Lord. I've met him. And you, you are my workmanship in the Lord. I was the first one to come to your town, Corinth, and preach the gospel. Were it not for my ministry, he tells them, your church would not even exist. So how can you say, I am not your apostle? How can you disown me in that way? Other churches which were not planted as a result of my preaching may have grounds to question my apostleship, but you, he asks them, how can you possibly think such a thing? And if he sounds a little bit angry and upset, he probably was. Because apostles, like ministers and the rest of us, are only human. Then he goes on to ask some more questions that are phrased with awkward double negatives. And they reflect the Corinthians' criticisms of him. Most translations smooth out the awkwardness and use the rhetorical effect. But what he actually asks in verses 4 to 6 is this. Surely it cannot be right that we have no right to eat and drink? Can it be right that we have no right to take about with us a Christian who is our wife, as the rest of the apostles have, as well as the brothers of the Lord and Peter? Or do Barnabas and I alone have no right to stop working for our living? It's quite difficult to get your head around what he's saying here, but behind the awkward phrasing of the double negatives, it's possible to discern what people in the church were saying about him. Paul's lifestyle shows he's not really an apostle. If he were, he would be exercising his apostolic rights to claim expenses, bed and board for himself and a wife, and he wouldn't be stuck in a workshop making tents all day. His decision to support himself shows actually he is a fake. And the fact that he supports himself shows that he's not apostle because apostles have the rights to be supported. He's not using that right, therefore he's not an apostle. That's what they were saying. Paul's response is to demonstrate that he knows what his rights are as an apostle. To insist that he is a real apostle. And that he's 100% aware of the fact that he is entitled to claim support 
as an apostle of Christ. He knows the arguments better than they do, actually. Apostles should no more have to live at their own expense than soldiers should have to live off their own own income. If a vineyard owner is entitled to eat his own grapes, or a shepherd is entitled to drink the milk from his own flock, then an apostle who sows spiritual seed in a church should be entitled to reap some material benefit. The scripture about muzzling an ox when it's threshing the grain makes the same point. An ox should be allowed to feed on the grain it is threshing. Paul says God isn't bothered about the ox. I think God might be bothered about the ox, but equally he makes the point, if it's right for an ox, how much more is it right for a person? How much more should an apostle be entitled to make a living from preaching the gospel? In exactly the same way as priests in the temple are entitled to take the offerings as food. And at the end of the day, didn't Jesus himself say that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel? So Paul makes it clear he knows all the arguments better than anyone. But in his case, he has decided not to use this right. Because he feels called to present the gospel free of charge. And to be true to his calling, that's what he's going to do. In effect, he has no choice in the matter. Because he's under an obligation to preach the gospel. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel, he says. I'm compelled to do it. And I'm not remotely ashamed of having to support myself, he says. In fact, he's proud that in supporting himself, he's able to make the gospel available with no strings attached. And no one is going to take that away from him. So he has the right to claim support. But for the sake of the gospel, he refuses to exercise that right. And those who criticise him for doing so are completely out of order. Another reason why Paul resisted receiving support from the church was that he didn't want to fall into the trap of people in the church thinking that because they paid his wages, that gave them a degree of authority over him, a degree of control over what he did and what he said. And he was right to be cautious. In that culture in particular, money was always given with strings attached. I'm giving this to you, I expect you to do this for me. And if he was in the pocket of some pretty powerful people in the church, he would not have authority in their eyes, actually, to be able to put them right when they were going wrong. And some of the powerful people in the church in Corinth were doing some pretty naff things. And he needed not to be under an obligation to them. And today as well, people frequently give money with strings attached. There's a tacit expectation that they should have a level of influence that corresponds to their degree of financial support. And Paul rightly resists this. He's not prepared to be in anyone's pocket. His allegiance is to Christ and Christ alone. And actually, that's how it works in Baptist churches as well. When we give, we give with no strings attached. Because the only authority we recognise is that of Christ. We don't say, well, that person, that person gives a lot of money, so we have to do as they say. Actually, no, we, we honour Christ. We're not in anyone's pocket here either. And so those who give more generously to the church don't thereby exercise a greater degree of influence or control. Please don't stop giving generously on the basis of what I'm saying. That, but it's true. What you give doesn't give you the right to call the shots in terms of what happens here. 
We are called to be open to hear what God is saying through anyone who belongs to the church, irrespective of their level of financial support. Because God can speak through anyone who is a member of the church. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned Richard Raw's book, Breathing Underwater. He has some challenging and thought-provoking observations. And he talks about wealth being more a state of mind than what you have in your bank account. He says, the mind of a rich person is invariably one of entitlement. I deserve this because I worked hard for it. But the death of any relationship, he says, is to have a sense of entitlement. Any notion that I deserve, I'm owed, I have a right to, I'm higher than you, absolutely undermines any notion of faith, hope or love between the involved parties. If we start insisting on our rights with each other, then that's detrimental to our commitment to each other. And so far as the church at Corinth was concerned, Paul refused to exercise his right to accept financial support from the church because he knew that if he became dependent on them for their financial support, there were those who would feel that that gave them the right to tell him what to do. And Paul wasn't prepared to start playing that game because his allegiance was to Christ and Christ alone. Now, if I'm honest, I don't preach on this passage very often because it's a difficult passage. I accept responsibility for preaching through 1 Corinthians. I've now got no one but myself to blame for that. And it's a really difficult passage to preach on as minister because here is Paul telling the church, don't need you for financial support. I'm going to support myself. Thank you very much. And yet here am I, as minister of the church, acutely conscious that I rely on your financial support to do the job God has called me to do. Yet technically, and it's not just a matter of semantics, I am an office holder here, not an employee, and you pay me a stipend, not a wage. And behind those semantic differences lies a very important reality, and that is actually... I don't work for Brighton Road Baptist Church. I work for God. And your giving enables me to do that. So even though there's a real sense in which I rely on your generous financial support, and believe me, I'm deeply grateful for it, nevertheless, doesn't give you the right to tell me what to do. The relationship between church and minister is one of a covenant of trust. You trust me for me to be diligent in doing my work for the gospel. And my calling is to use the freedom which I have through your financial support to serve this church faithfully and well. But it's all about trust. Your giving liberates me to serve you and that is something which I pledge to do. And actually, it's a model for good relationships, how good relationships should work. They should all be about a covenant of trust. Not one person in charge and the other person being told what to do. But actually, you know, we trust each other. We're committed to each other. We pledge to serve each other because we are in this relationship of trust and commitment. And we can rely on one another. The whole question of authority is a tricky one. On the one hand, your financial support for my ministry doesn't give you the right to tell me what I should be doing. On the other hand, my position as minister 
doesn't give me the right to tell you what you should be doing either. It's not about rights. That's why it's crucial that minister and church find ways to work in a collaborative relationship. And as soon as we start to talk about who's in charge here, you can tell that something somewhere is not quite right. One of the core principles of which we operate is that our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh, is the sole and absolute authority in all matters relating to faith and practice. It's in the first, one of the first principles, the Baptist Union Declaration, if you want to know where that comes from. But the bottom line is, only Jesus has the right to call the shots in this place, in this body of people. And if we start to assume that we have authority over the church or somebody else, in the, somebody else has authority in the church, we are straying onto very thin ice because we are all called to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. That means I'm not in charge. It means the deacons aren't in charge. It means that there's no one individual or group of people who have a monopoly on authority. But actually, when the members of the church gather together, as we will this Wednesday, for our church meeting and our AGM, that is when we pledge ourselves together, humbly and prayerfully, to seek the guidance and the mind of Christ, submitting ourselves together to his lordship and direction. That's how we operate. Who's in charge here? It's Jesus actually. And he's the one to whom we're all called to submit. And we do so because, as Paul says in Philippians 2, chapter chapter 2, verses 3 to 11, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Go to the next slide, please. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in Brighton Road Baptist Church. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.